Let's open the Scriptures to the second book of Samuel, chapter 11 and part of chapter 12, Second Samuel 11. As we continue our series of sermons in Matthew 1, dealing with uh, the various ladies that appear in the genealogy, the family tree of the Lord Jesus, we come to the lady that's referenced in Second Samuel 11, she and her husband Uriah the Hittite. So let's read uh, 2 Samuel 11 verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his own house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then at the king's anger rises <clears throat> and he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? 
Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall, so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the, of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house, and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who was born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. I may preach to you the Word of God from the Gospel of Matthew, continuing our series in this family tree of the Lord. We'll be focusing on verse 6b. Just to refresh us a little bit, we'll start a little earlier at 
verse 5. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And that'll be our focus, that little second part of verse 6. People of God, holy and loved on account of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's Christmas Eve, Christmas Eve day, a time of the year many people look forward to, a time of celebration. The kids are looking forward to opening gifts if they haven't already. Many of us have some family plans we are excited about. We're happy to be in church today and tomorrow again to remember the birth of our Savior and to worship the Lord for this precious gift. So there is a lot of natural happiness this time of the year among us, but is everybody happy at Christmas time? Believe it or not, for some, Christmas is one of the most unhappy times of the year. Some feel very miserable this time of the year. Some don't have family or close friends to celebrate with. Others have family, but because of brokenness or tension or strain in the family circle, they know they'll end up alone this Christmas. There are people who are on the outside looking in at the, the warm and happy celebrations of others. They are somewhat envious of what others have, and that leaves them feeling empty inside. And for others, and this can include church members just as well, that, that empty feeling can have a kind of a darkness to it because they do not have a, a, a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, with the very child we're celebrating, whose birth we're celebrating. These individuals know that the way they've been living their lives has left them distant from God distant from the Savior, and they, they don't have uh, much hope that Christmas really is for them. They just deal with it on a surface level. Coming to church only highlights their own mistakes, makes them realize what they don't have. And so a worship service can even be like torture, singing hymns about Christ, bowing the head in prayer, sitting beneath the preaching about Christ, but inside feeling like a hypocrite because I know I'm miles away from God. I don't tell anybody because they're ashamed of what's going on inside, and so there's, this, there's a cloud that hangs over some people, and they don't know how to get rid of it. Well, brothers and sisters, God has a message this morning for the empty, for the distant for the guilty, even for the hypocrites, a message designed to remove all clouds of depression and despair. The message is this, Christmas is for everyone, even for fallen saints. 
That'll be our theme as I bring you the Word of God. Christmas is for fallen saints too. We'll take a look at the fallen and the helpless, and then the patient and the compassionate. Well, here we are again in Matthew's genealogy, and as we've looked at the other mothers mentioned in this family tree of our Lord, we found that there's a whole backstory that teaches something about the saving work of Christ. And the same is true of our text this morning. Yet there's also something quite different about our text in verse 6b. Compared to the other text we've looked at, here the lady's name is not even mentioned. I wondered if you noticed that. Verse 6b, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. The Greek is even more curt, by the one of Uriah. So the, the mother of Solomon is not even named. Why? We know her name. It's written in the Old Testament, Bathsheba. Matthew doesn't hesitate to mention the names of the other mothers on this list, even with some very strange and disturbing stories, right? We've, we've read Tamar's name and Rahab's name and Ruth's name. So why does he leave out Bathsheba's name? Because, brothers and sisters, Bathsheba is not the main point. The Holy Spirit actually puts the focus on David and on David's actions that he fathered Solomon by a woman who once belonged to Uriah, the Hittite. What is front and center is not the role of the lady, but the role of the man, David, in stealing her from Uriah. And that's really the same emphasis found in our reading of 2 Samuel 11 and 12. As we read that passage, you probably saw that there's very little mention about Bathsheba. We don't know her thoughts. We don't know her feelings. They're never spoken of. Her responsibility or direct role in this event, they're never explained. But over and over again, we read that she was Uriah's wife. And over and over again, it's made clear that David stole Uriah's wife. Nathan says it in chapter 12, verse 9, to David, you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you have taken his wife. Next verse, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, says the Lord, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David did this. David was the one in a position of authority. He was the king, and he abused his authority. David was the rich man who stole the one precious thing that belonged to his poor neighbor. And so the Holy Spirit is saying here in, in our text, Matthew, when you write your genealogy, make sure that this point about David ends up in that family tree. People have to know the truth about David, that he is an adulterer, a thief, a murderer, and a liar. Make sure that gets in there. The wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Or who was David? Matthew mentions in the first part of verse 6 that David was the king. Well-known fact. But in the context of this genealogy, it's the only time 
that Matthew mentions the office of king. I mean, there was a whole lot of kings in this list, right? They're all kings and sons of kings, but only for David does he say the king. So it stands out. And really, compared to all the others on the list, there was no king like David. If you look at the, the big picture of his life, he was a faithful man of God who, who was prepared to sacrifice even his very own life to protect or to serve the Lord. Recall that it was David who, as a youth, who trusted God to protect him while he was caring for the sheep, his father's sheep. He was attacked by bears and lions. He trusted the Lord to protect him. It was the same David who again trusted the Lord when he confronted that fearsome giant Goliath with only a sling and five stones. He trusted the Lord like none other. David was also long-suffering. He learned to wait upon the Lord. He learned to rely upon the Lord when he was being oppressed. Though David had been anointed to be king in his youth by Samuel, he was not only willing to serve in King Saul's army and risk his life, but he patiently endured much suffering later on when Saul, King Saul turned on him. When King Saul began to hunt David down and put a bounty on his head, think of all of David's many psalms that come out of this intense period of lonely suffering, a number of years where he was hunted like a dog through the mountains of Israel. And yet through it all, David remained loyal to the Lord. He even remained loyal to the king, right? He had a chance to kill King Saul. He said, I'm not going to do it. That's the Lord's anointed. So this David was remarkable in many, many ways. The only person in the Bible described as a man after God's own heart. He was the model shepherd king. He loved the Lord. He loved going to church to the tabernacle. He loved to sing God's praises. He was the sweet psalmist of Israel, a band director and music director who did the most to ensure the continual praise of God in the temple. It was to this David that God had promised to build an everlasting house and always keep one of his sons on the throne of Israel. There was no one like King David. There was no one so loved by God and even so loved by the people. The people loved David. And now the Holy Spirit wants to remind us it was this King David who stole Uriah's wife. It was this model church leader who, who slinks into a lamentable darkness of filthy sin. The whole of chapter 11, as you read it, just churns your stomach, doesn't it? David goes from one sin to the next. First, he lusts in his heart for this beautiful woman bathing nearby. David himself, as a married man, has several wives. But here he covets another man's wife. And soon he commits adultery with her. That's totally on David. He's the king. He has the authority. You don't disobey the command of the king unless you want to die. So he's the responsible party. It's his gross sin becomes more gross yet when Bathsheba becomes pregnant. David hears the news, but that doesn't move him to 
repent and confess his sin and come clean. Rather, he commits another sin to cover it up. We do the same kind of thing so often, right? We do something wrong, then we lie, we cover, we deceive because we don't want to get into trouble and we don't want to give up the sin. That's the very natural pathway of our sinful hearts. And King David shows that for all of his godly past, he is as skilled in the art of deception as anyone. Oh, how prone we are to wander. Lord, I feel it. Do you feel it? This is David and his heart. Are our hearts any different? David twice tries to get Uriah to sleep with his wife so that he would believe himself to be the father of the coming child, but Uriah refuses. Isn't that quite something? The way that Uriah acts in this passage in chapter 11, I mean, Uriah is a Hittite, we learn. What's a Hittite? Well, that was one of the tribes of the Canaanites. We've been learning about the Canaanites. The Canaanites, as a whole, were a wicked, wicked group of people or groups of people. They've, they've done countless evil things. That's why God wanted to exterminate them from the land of Canaan. But here we see God's amazing grace uh, at work. This Uriah the Hittite is loyal to the nth degree, both to King David. He sleeps with the servants, won't, won't even go to his house. while there's a war going on, and, and Uriah is, is loyal to the Lord, to his God. It's, it's like opposite world. We've got David acting like a typical heathen Canaanite, conniving and stealing and committing adultery, while Uriah proves himself to be an exemplary Israelite. He is the model believer, a man willing to give his life for king and country and God. It's a high point for this Uriah but it's the lowest of the low points for King David. Brothers and sisters, you, you will not meet a bigger hypocrite in the Bible than David. We don't often think of him like that, but those chapters in Samuel tell the story pretty plainly. For someone who knew so much and lived so close to the Lord and had been so blessed by the Lord, right? The Lord even says to him, I gave you so much, David. I would have even doubled what I'd given you if you had only asked. This kind of behavior on David's part with Uriah and Bathsheba makes the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, and we know that they're legendary for hypocrisy, makes them look pretty tame. David turns his back on God. David kills his neighbor. David takes his dead neighbor's wife, and then he pretends everything's okay. Just everybody go back to what you're doing. And let's keep in mind, this was not a short-lived event. David lived in this, this filth for a, about a year, nine months for Bathsheba's pregnancy, and then sometime after the birth yet, before Nathan came. So for the better part of 12 months, the man after God's own heart is faking it. He, he fakes worship. 
He fakes prayers. He fakes trust in God. How can this man end up in the family tree of the Savior? David, during that time frame, was a covenant breaker, a fallen saint, floundering in the mud of his own transgressions. Can you relate to David, beloved? You ever had a time like that in your life where you're in the mud of your own sin? What an awful way to live, isn't it? A terrible feeling to have to keep up appearances in front of your family, in front of your church and friends, but and inwardly to, to waste away and have no peace. Because you can't have peace with the Almighty when you're living in your sin, can you? You cannot have sweet fellowship with God when you're living in your sin. It doesn't work. When you refuse to repent of your sin, inside your heart, you don't even want God. And God, by the way, is angry with you so long as you're not repenting. Just read Psalm 32 sometime, maybe at lunch today. David wrote that psalm probably after this experience with Bathsheba, this whole sinful time. David experienced a chafing. He was the hypocrite chafing on the inside, showing up at the tabernacle for all the feasts because that's what he had to do, but living under the cloud of his own despair and misery, helpless to get out of it. Maybe that struck you too, just how David is so helpless and incapable to get himself out of this jam. Every move he makes gets him only deeper into trouble. When he's confronted by complications from one sin, he decides to add another sin, and then another sin, and further down he goes into this deep pit of despair. Nothing is made better. By the end of chapter 11, but now the hole he's dug is impossibly deep for him to get out. There's no way out. The Lord even waits for David to, to, to make a move. A whole year, David. Man, after my own heart, I'll, I'll wait for you to come to your senses. Surely you, of all people, will find a way to rescue yourself from your sin, won't you? But David cannot. David can find no solution. You know why? Because he's not even looking for a solution. He doesn't want a solution. That's how bad it is with our sinful hearts. He's a picture of a fallen saint trapped in his very own sin. Even more, he's a picture of double misery because a person who once knew the joy of the Lord now only knows misery and loneliness by his own willful rebellion. What does a feast day like Christmas mean to a person like that? What would Passover mean to David during that time? What does Christmas mean to someone among us who feels like David at this moment? What interest does God have in a believer who, against better knowledge, plunges himself into sin? 
We want to ask, would it not have been far better for the Christ child to be born in some other family line, to start with some other tribe or some other people who were not so pathetically weak, who were not so rebellious? But the Son of God chose the line of David anyway. Just like earlier he had chosen the line of Judah anyway, despite the sin. Matthew marked down that Uriah, Uriah's wife was taken by David because I want everybody to know that I, the Lord God, am in the business of undoing the sin of even the most vile hypocrite in the church. There are hypocrites in the church, but I can also rescue them. You see, Christmas is for alley cats, like Judah. You remember that a few weeks ago? Dirtying himself every which way for felines like Tamar, but also for fallen saints like David. It's on the one hand for people who, who grew up living a, a selfish, sinful life. And it's, on the other hand, for true believers who fell into sin and became hypocrites. Hypocrites who then are selfish and sinful. Because the grace of the Savior, it blows the doors off the, the iron-clad grip that sin has on us. The Lord Jesus is mighty to save. He can even conquer hypocrisy. You know, it's one of the most vile things, right? We, we can't stand hypocrisy in others. We don't often see it in ourselves. And yet the Lord God has mercy for the hypocrites. With the Messiah, there is hope for the likes of you and me and all who have turned down the path of sin. Maybe it's even been years down the path of sin, keeping up appearances. Brothers and sisters, if that's you, hear the Lord Jesus speak to you and me. Come out of your sin by coming to me. I have given my life in payment for your sins to set you, to set me free from all our guilt. So come to me in faith and receive this gift I'm giving you. You don't have to stay in your hypocrisy. You don't have to stay in your darkness. You don't have to stay in your emptiness. Jesus Christ specializes in melting hard hearts and conquering stubborn souls with His patience and compassion. For notice how the Lord does this, how he, how he deals with David throughout this incident. The Lord is in, is in no rush to confront His servant. Certainly the Lord had every right to rush in and send swift judgment. But instead we find that God, He carefully bides His time with David. Particularly in David's case, a man who, who knew better than most the great love of the Lord as well as the Lord's holiness, a man who was leader over the people, a model and an example for the Israelites, a man who often went in to sit near the ark of God to speak with God. No one would have thought, no one who knew all the facts, 
No one would have thought it out of place if God had sent Nathan the next day after committing adultery and pronounced judgment over him. That would have been expected. Yet nobody comes the next day. And nobody comes the day after that. Nobody comes for months. No messenger, no pronouncement of wrath, no judgment spoken. Do you see in this, brothers and sisters, the, the, the truth, that beloved truth of Psalm 103, which David also wrote, the truth that the Lord does not treat us as our sins deserve. You know that line? He will not always chide. He will not always be angry. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. That's what he's doing with David. As David says there, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. That's how the Lord is to us, even in our hypocrisy. It's not that the Lord ignores our sin, that we get away with stuff. No, no. By the end of chapter 12, 2 Samuel 12, the Lord catches up, so to speak, with David through Nathan. And even in pronouncing forgiveness, there are also consequences for David to bear. His son dies. Terrible consequence. And there's going to be a sword and division in his family. More terrible consequences. But meanwhile, he treats us with so much more patience and compassion than we ever deserve. That's the kind of salvation the Christ child brings. The God who dealt so kindly with David is the same God who came down to earth and ended up a baby in Mary's arms. He's the same God who deals with us in compassion today. And look how gentle and wise God is here. The Lord could have thundered into that courtroom in the person of Nathan with condemnation, but instead he shows great restraint. And through Nathan he sends the word, God sends his word to work repentance. He sends his word with such tact, right, such wisdom, that Nathan's story is designed to open David's eyes to see what he had been blind to before, willfully blind to, to let David actually convict himself, which he does. That is the power of the Word of God. You, you hear the Word of God, and when the Spirit goes forth with that Word, He can undo the sinner's heart just like that. God speaks, and David melts. He's cut to the heart. He forces David to look in the mirror so that all the pretenses fall away. All his pride is dried up. All desire to evade and cover up his sin, it all disappears so that he says to Nathan, verse 13, very simply, very humbly, the contrite heart of Psalm 51, he says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I murdered Uriah. I committed adultery with Bathsheba. But I have sinned against the Lord first and foremost. This is the grace-filled way of God with us sinners. Through the anointed Savior Jesus, 
Jesus is this God come to us in human flesh. And He takes the same patient and gracious approach in dealing with sinners as God has always done throughout history. Did not the Lord Jesus show it to people like Zacchaeus, the tax collector? Right? Passing by, Zacchaeus up in a tree. Zacchaeus, you come down from there, for I'm going to your house today. Zacchaeus never even knew the Lord. But the Lord knew him. Did he not preach the parable of the prodigal son where the father stands waiting for the prodigal son, that rebellious son, to come home? And when one of his own close disciples denied three times in a single night that he even knew the Lord Jesus, did the Messiah call down judgment upon Peter and cut him off from his church? Or on the other hand, did he ignore his sin and let it go as if it never happened? No. That one who was born in Bethlehem's manger later went and died on Golgotha's tree for Peter's sin, for Zacchaeus' sins, and for the sins of every prodigal child out there, including the fallen saint and including the helpless hypocrite. And Peter later was gently restored three times over by the same merciful word of his master. Peter, do you love me more than these? Yes, you know I love you. Peter, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. That's restoration to the office of apostle. That's compassion. Do we not see that compassion coming out in Christ's command to us as church to address sinners with His Word as He commands us to in Matthew 18. That chapter is about the sheep that stray, and the good shepherd does not want any sheep to stray. Those who wander off like David and Peter, they're not to be left alone in their wandering and in their rebellion. They are to be called out to. They are to be urged to come back to the church by members of the church who speak to them through the, the voice of the Good Shepherd. Through the prayers of God's people, we call out to God to bring back those who have strayed away and through our speaking of gentle words of admonition where we can have contact with those persons, the good news, to repent and believe for the complete forgiveness of your sins. Come back and join us, sinners who know forgiveness. Isn't that the hope of every fallen saint? There's always a way home. Isn't that the hope of every church member who has drifted away, whether it's into rebellion, open rebellion, or hidden hypocrisy? Isn't that the hope of every human being on the planet who is lost in sin, who is blind by nature to what's really wrong in their hearts? This is why the Lord Jesus is not ashamed to be born in the line of David, to be born in the house of Judah, because His mission is to save sinners of all kinds, you and me included, to transform sinners into children of God who love their Father in heaven and turn away from their sin, 
Christmas is exactly for sinners and failures, for the empty in their heart and the lonely in their life. It's for hypocrites and fallen saints like us. Let's let go of our sin in repentance and let us with a contrite heart embrace the Savior Jesus Christ for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. You, you want to be forgiven, right? You want to be forgiven, right? We all do. You want to have a close, personal relationship with your Creator, the, the living God of heaven and earth? You want that? Here it is. In the Christmas Christ, give your heart to Jesus and receive from Him the joy of His salvation. Amen.